as we turn to scripture, I just want you to be able to kind of center your thoughts. I was going to say this later, but I'm going to say it now. So in our chapter, Johnny Mac told it, John MacArthur told us that it would be really great if you're struggling with anxiety to just lock yourself away for a really long time with the Psalms. Um, unfortunately, we can't stay here all day. That would be awesome if we could. But for a little bit, let's go ahead and do what he suggested, and we're going to hone in on a psalm. So, But before we turn to the psalm, I want to read you a little story that I found very encouraging. Um, he also started the chapter on George Mueller, which I was so excited because George Mueller happens to be one of my favorites. And I know I say that a lot, but I really do have a lot of favorites. Um, but what I'm going to be reading you little excerpts along the way that go along with our lesson, I'm getting it out of this. It's called An Hour with George Mueller. If you would like your own copy, email or text me later. It's online for free. So I can zip you a link if you're like, text me later, baby. I already have one, one woman, who me? Um, but very encouraging. So you'll get flavorings of it along the way because I'm going to read you ex excerpts out of it. So Charles Inglis, the well-known evangelist, relates the following remarkable incident. When I first came to America 31 years ago, I crossed the Atlantic with the captain of a steamer who was one of the most devoted men I ever knew. And when we were off the banks of Newfoundland, he said to me, Mr. Ingalls, the last time I crossed here, five weeks ago, one of the most extraordinary things happened that has completely revolutionized the whole of my Christian life. Up to that time, I was one of your ordinary Christians. We had a man of God on board, George Mueller of Bristol. I had been on that bridge for 22 hours and never left it. I was startled by someone tapping me on the shoulder. It was George Mueller. Captain, said he, I have come to tell you that I must be in Quebec on Saturday afternoon. This was Wednesday. It is impossible, I said. Very well, if your ship can't take me, God will find some other means of locomotion to take me. I have never broken an engagement in 57 years. The captain said, I would willingly help you, but how can I? I am helpless. Let us go down to the chart room and pray, he said. I looked at this man and I thought to myself, what lunatic asylum could the man have come from? I have never heard of such a thing. Mr. Mueller, I said, do you know how dense this fog is? No, he replied. My eye is not on the density of the fog, but on the living God who controls every circumstance of my life. Hang on, I'm going to read that again because I want you to hear it all at once. My eye is not on the density of the fog, but on the living God who controls every circumstance of my life. He went down on his knees and he prayed one of the most simple prayers. Bless you. I thought to myself, that would suit a children's class 
where the children were not more than eight or nine years of age. The burden of his prayer was something like this. Oh, Lord, if it is consistent with thy will, please remove this fog in five minutes. Hang on, y'all. You know the engagement you made for me in Quebec for Saturday. I believe it is your will. When he had finished, I was going to pray, but he put a hand on my shoulder and told me not to pray. First, he said, you do not believe that God will do it. And second, I believe that he has done it. And there is no need whatever for you to pray about it. I looked at him. And George Mueller said this. I'm sorry. Captain, I have known my Lord for 57 years, and there has never been a single day that I have failed to gain an audience with the king. Get up, Captain, and open the door, and you will find the fog gone. I got up, and the fog was gone. On Saturday afternoon, George Mueller was in Quebec. Okay, we're going to do this. Ladies, do we not long to have faith like that? To pray knowing that he hears. The Lord hears and will answer according to his will. To have that kind of confidence in the Lord. And yet... We can. We serve the same God that George Mueller did. We have been sealed with the same Holy Spirit that George Mueller was sealed with. And we have the same active living word of God. And we can have perseverance in prayer. He said later, the great fault of the children of God is that they do not continue in prayer. They do not go on praying. They do not persevere. If they desire anything for God's glory, they should pray until they get it. Oh, how good, kind, gracious, and condescending is the one with whom we have to do. He has given me, unworthy as I am, immeasurably above all I have asked or thought. I am only a poor, frail, sinful man, But he has heard my prayers tens of thousands of times. So ladies, this morning, let's draw away. Let's hone in on the Psalms, the living, active word of God. Again, unfortunately, we can't say all day or all week. But as we look through this Psalm this morning, we're going to see two different aspects of living a life of faith and trust in God as shown in Psalm 116. We have the personal nature of the preservation of the Lord and then the righteous response to God's rescue. So if you haven't already, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 116, starting in verse 1. I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications, because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I shall call upon him as long as I live. The cords of death encompassed me, and the terrors of Sheol came upon me. I found distress and sorrow. 
Then I called upon the name of the Lord. Oh, Lord, I beseech you, save my life. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low, and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have rescued my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed when I said, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all men are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. Oh, Lord, surely I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your handmaid. You have loosed my bonds. To you I shall offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call upon the name of the Lord. I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. So, as we look at this psalm, it's very helpful to know Psalm 113 all the way to 118 are known as the Egyptian Hallel. Now, Hallel simply means praise Yahweh. Thus, they were written as praises that were sung in connection with the Passover meal and other Hebrew festivals. <clears throat> and reflect upon God's redemption of his people, particularly from their bondage in Egypt. In the context of the Passover celebration, Psalm 113 and 114 typically would have been sung before the Passover meal, and Psalm 115 to 118 would have been sung afterward. It is most likely that these were the psalms that Jesus and his disciples sung after the Last Supper, which was a Passover meal. Before their retirement to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus' subsequent arrest. These psalms are designed not only to aid the Hebrews in their worship, but they are also designed with an evangelistic flavor to them. Imagine the impact that these psalms must have had on visitors to Jerusalem during these festival times. You would have had streams of people entering into the city singing praises to God for his wondrous works and inviting others to sing along with them. It was meant to be an exciting time, a time that might even bring outsiders to investigate the wonders of this mighty God and his marvelous Messiah. So number one on your outlines, we are first going to look, the first aspect that we're going to look at is the personal nature of the preservation of the Lord. The personal nature of the preservation of the Lord. So if you're to look back at Psalm 115, 
that was a psalm that was meant to be sung as a congregation, as a group together. Then when you move to Psalm 116, it's very, very personal. You have a lot of personal pronouns, I, my, me. Then when you move on to 117, the itty bitty psalm, that's international. All the nations are to praise the Lord. So as we're moving through this, we see particular 116 is that personalness. And you see it straight off the bat in um, verse number one. I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplication. So A, on your outlines, what is this showing us about the Lord? It's showing us that the Lord hears not just in a general way, not just in a, in a, as us as a people, which he does, but in a very, very personal way. The psalmist starts here to give a very personal testimony to his love for the Lord, but it wasn't a reasonless love. He loved because the Lord heard his voice and his supplications. That word love there is to desire to breathe after anything. And that breathing after something, the Hebrew has just these wonderful little intricacies in it, but it's that longing. Like when you first, first start dating your husband and you're falling in love with them and you just can't even breathe because you can't wait for the next time you see him again. That longing after another person. And yet this is a longing after God himself that longing, that panting, just like the deer pants for the water, our heart pants for God. So ladies, is that our heart this morning? When is the last time we were overcome in our love for the Lord, that we long for him as much as we long for our very breath? <clears throat> and the psalmist notices unashamed of his love. In fact, he starts the song off with it. He just wants it right there, out in the open. I love Jewish people because on a whole, especially back in this culture, they're very emotional people and they're not really shy to show it. So, and I feel like we can connect with that a little bit, right? But it's also so sweet to see the joy. Like, it's almost like he just can't even wait to get it out. So he just bursts out in song. I love the Lord because he hears me and he hears my supplications. So when it says hears there, it means to hear intelligently, often with the implication of attention. So it's not just uh, the Lord has a capability of hearing me, which is so very true, but yet there is a personal attention to his hearing. And to remember, this is personal. He hears my supplications. So, and sometimes ladies, is it not easy to be like, yeah, the Lord hears our prayers. That's easy. But when it comes down to, oh, you mean my prayers? Oh, um, I mean, yeah, he probably does. But do you really trust that he hears your prayers with attention, especially just for you? if you are his child. And it's so hard for us because we're human. Can we, Ron often jokes and says, you can hear three conversations at once. And we're like, no, I actually can't. 
But if you take, pay attention hard enough, you can get snippets of different conversations, right? Do you ever, your husband's talking to somebody else and you're talking to somebody and then you turn around and say, oh, by the way, that was Friday, not Saturday, babe. And then you keep on talking to your, and Ronald look at me and go, how do you do that? I'm like, well, I, th I think some of it is a God-given gift because he knows we as women have 42 different people we're taking care of. So we have to be able to catch snippets of little things going on. But at the end of the day, we are human and we don't catch it all, right? So it's easy for us to think, oh, God's too busy to listen to me. God's too busy to hear me. Ladies, is that even possible? No, God can never be too busy. He will always personally have attention for each of his children. He is infinite. We are desperately finite. So be very careful that you don't subtly say, hmm, God doesn't have time to hear my prayers. No, I trust that my God has revealed himself to me where if he says he gives me attention, he gives me attention. Not because I'm great, because he is infinitely amazing. So just something to think through as we think through this psalm. And two, does the Lord even hear our voice throughout the day? The psalmist is saying, he heard my voice. Are we praying to him? Not only drawing away and having secluded time of prayer, but also throughout the day. George Mueller, I, didn't have, I couldn't tuck everything in that I wanted to, but he talks about, I pray all the time. Yes, I have hours that I set aside for prayer, but I pray as I walk, as I interact with people, as I'm doing my different things, as I'm sitting down, as I'm eating. He names all these ways. Ladies, we can do that too. We can have an ongoing, you know, the pray without sissing, an ongoing conversation with our Lord. So that way, if we are continually pouring our hearts out before the Lord, does that leave your mind room to go in areas it shouldn't be going? Not necessarily. Now, our hearts are desperately wicked, so it's really talented at doing it. But it's that capturing. I'm getting ahead of myself, so I'm, I'm going to stop my train of thought there. But there's so many good things I want to say all at once. But do we bring our supplications to him? Or do we try to solve our problems our own way? And when that fails, then we cry out to him. Or do we just stew in our own hearts and allow anxiety to overwhelm us instead of turning to the one who can give us peace by trusting him with our problems and then actually trusting that he hears and he will work, but on his own timetable not ours. Charles Spurgeon said, answered prayers are the silken bonds which bind our hearts to God. And I thought that was just so beautiful. When God answers our prayers, do we not get just a little excited? Like, oh, he, he hurt me. And this was even something I didn't tell anybody else. But yet God answered. That's amazing. So, and what an encouragement to the soul of, okay, okay, if he heard me here, that means he's still hearing. That means he might do it again. I should pray more. 
Does it not encourage our hearts when you have those answers to prayer? But ladies, we got to be doing the praying first. And two, it's so helpful if you can somehow keep track of those answered prayers. Keep track of the faithfulness of God. Keep track of, okay, if my God did this here and this here and this here in my life, and I'm worried about this over here, surely he will hear me again and he will answer. So those are the things when that anxiety comes up, when your mind starts racing, when you're having a hard time breathing, those are the things you stop listening to the, oh no, what if, what if, what if? And you start going, nope. God was faithful to me here. God was faithful to me here. God was faithful to me here. He will be faithful again and preach it over and over and over again to yourself. We got to keep going. So look back down at verse two. Because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I shall call upon him as long as I live. And I love that word inclined. It means to bend or turn one's ear toward a speaker in order to listen well. I don't think there's anything more attractive about my husband than when I see him bending over to hear a child. It just makes me love him more. Is it not true when you see the tenderness of, I must stop everything, a lot of our husbands are big old guys, right? And you have this itty bitty person and they bend over to listen. And it's just so beautiful. Or Charles Spurgeon also said this could be like if you're visiting somebody in the hospital bed and you're bending over because they're just so weak and frail and you can barely get it out. And yet that, that inclining to listen well. So <clears throat> what's his response there? Therefore, I shall call upon him as long as I live. So here's one of his resolutions. Because God has heard me, I will continue calling out as long as I live. And that call on means to have recourse or a source of help in a difficult situation, to make an appeal or request to help or information. So here, ladies, the psalmist is showing us a proven trust in God because of answers to prayer, a firm resolve to go to the Lord for the rest of his life. Have you made that same resolve? That, okay, I've been really bad at this, Lord, but I know you hear. I know you've answered past prayers. Help me to resolve to run to you first not feel and listen to the anxiety and the anxious thoughts within my own heart, but that I would recognize what they are and stop them and run to you. So another clip from our George Mueller booklet, Pastor Ch Charles R. Parsons describes an hour's interview with George Mueller toward the close of his life. Mueller was 91 years old when this interview happened. He, he passed away at 92. <clears throat> and he says, this pastor, this, a warm summer day found me slowly walking up the shady groves of Ashley Hill, Bristol. At the top, there met my gaze the immense buildings which shelter over 2,000 orphans built by a man who has given to the world the most striking object lesson in faith it has ever seen. 
In that hour, the source of George Mueller's great spiritual strength was clearly made manifest. The aged saint, with all his faculties, excuse me, all his faculties unimpaired, so clear mind, well of body, was eloquent the whole time on one theme, the praise of Jehovah, the great hearer and answerer of his people's prayers. My own words were few. So Charles asks him, you have always found the Lord faithful to his promise, Mr. Mueller? George Mueller responds, always. He has never failed me for nearly 70 years. Every need in connection with this work has been supplied. The orphans from first until now have numbered 9,500, but they have never wanted a meal. Excuse me, hundreds of times we have commenced the day without a penny. But our Heavenly Father has sent supplies the moment they were actually required. There was never a time when we had no wholesome meal. During all these years, I've been enabled to trust in the living God alone. In answer to prayer, $7,500,000 have been sent to me. Ladies, this is back in 1897. We have needed as much as $200,000 in one year, and it has all come when needed. No man can ever say I asked him for a penny. We have no committees, no collectors, no voting, and no endowment. All has come in answer to believing prayer. So ladies, this is the gravity. If you don't know his story, I wanted you to get a picture of the Whoa-ness of when he is saying answered prayer, he means answered prayer for a lot. This is not a man who is just asking for his needs. This is a man who has thousands upon thousands of people relying on him for their every daily bread. In his life, there was a span of 10 years that literally it was from meal to meal he did not know where it was coming from. So he would pray, and the Lord would answer, and then it would happen again, and then it would happen again. So just the amazingness. But again, do not allow yourselves to think, oh, but that's, that's George Mueller. God wouldn't do that for me. Ladies, we serve the same God. George Mueller himself would tell you, he will later too. I'll read something where he does say it. But he will say I am just an ordinary man. There is nothing special about me. I just believed God's word. That's all. That's it. Nothing special. No special prayers uttered. Even his prayers, the ones who talk about his prayers, usually the response was surprised about how simple they were. Because you think, ooh, Here's this great man of God, and he's a prayer warrior. So you're gearing up to hear this prayer. And he talks like a child talks to his father. And you go, that's it? That's all you got? That, as you read through his story over and over again, that was the normal response of, really? And yet God used those simple prayers in a mighty way. And does he not get more glory for it? 
He did not, just like Chris has been teaching, he didn't come with flowery speech or wisdom or any of those things. People used to say, oh, it's because you're a really intelligent man. And George Mueller would say, no, 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 no. I have no intelligence of my own. I have no wisdom of my own. God provides everything. And ladies, if it's true for him, it can be true for us too. We need to trust this living God who will use us in such ways. And I'm preaching at myself as much as I'm preaching at you. So, y'all teaching. I don't preach, I'm a girl. It is very important to note that when George, George Mueller says believing prayer, he does not mean, and please listen to this, he does not mean if you believe it enough, then it will happen. Or he does not mean, of course God wants you happy. So go ahead and pray for the things that will make you happy. I was looking for my quote, and I was like, oh, where'd it go? It's at the bottom. Thomas Manton, who was a Puritan, said, self-love may lead us to prayers, but love to God excites us to praises. Therefore, to seek and not to praise, so he means to seek, to ask God for things, and not to praise is to be lovers of ourselves rather than of God. So as we're thinking through this prayer, we need to be mindful. Am I praising the Lord? Am I exciting that love for the Lord? Or am I just seeking for myself? So I thought it would be very helpful. George Mueller himself wrote out um, five conditions of prayer. And this is great. My, My stuff's so dark. It is a big difference when you're standing up here than over across the street. Um, Sometimes it gets so dark because it's kind of cavernous in here, but we're thankful we have a roof over our heads, but sometimes I can't read it. So um, praise God, I have something else I can read. So on your outlines, I thought it would be so helpful to share with you, this is George Mueller written, the five conditions of prevailing prayer. So you're like, okay, Rach, I'm with you. I'm tracking. I don't want to have self-love when I'm praying to God. I want to pray in a way according to his will that is pleasing to him. So here are five conditions that George Mueller recommends when you're going to prayer. Number one, entire dependence on the merits and mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ as the only ground of any claim for blessing. John 15, 16 there says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give you. So we humbly recognize it's not because I'm doing a good job. We can't come to the Lord and say, See, Lord, I read my Bible. I prayed. I even attended Friday morning Bible study. So I'm going to ask you for, or when we don't get what we're praying for, this is usually what happens when we don't get what we're praying for. We go, but Lord, I've been so faithful. I've been serving you. I've been reading my Bible. I've been, what are we doing right there? I have done all these things to gain your favor. 
And sometimes it's so subtle, we don't even recognize it until we're mid-sentence and we go, oh, that's legalism. Trying to earn God's favor because I did all my checklist. See, God, aren't you proud of me? No. Only the merits and the mediation of Christ, that embedded in that is humility. We come going, I deserve nothing. Just like George Mueller already said, I am frail, I am poor, I am sinful, but yet Christ is great. And Christ has given me his righteousness. So Lord, the only reason I come to you today is in his merits and his mediation. He is my go-between, he is my high priest. So we take courage from that. Number two, separation from all known sin. If we regard iniquity in our hearts, the Lord will not hear us for it would be sanctioning sin, which God definitely cannot do. Psalm 66, 18 there says, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. So very straightforward. Do not think you can hide sin in your heart and then pray to God for other things. But better yet, ladies, don't say, well, I can't pray today. I have this sin and I have that. No, repent. Now is a great time to repent. Right now, no matter where you're at, no matter what you're doing, repent. I mean, the Christian life, all we do is we repent over and over and over again because we have sin. But that act of repentance brings glory to God because you are recognizing Christ died for that sin. And I trust that if I confess my sin, God is just and he will forgive that sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I am released from the bondage and the guilt of that sin because I trust that God has forgiven me. What joy there is in a repentant sinner. What joy there is in a repentant Christian. There's great joy in that. And even our catechism, if you're like rage, repentance, people keep on throwing words out. Ask me later, I'll get you a um, Kingdom Kids Binder. They're fabulous, I love these questions. And I, I, we teach our little people, what is repentance? To be sorry for sin and to hate and forsake it because it is displeasing to God. So helpful. And as you teach your little ones, teach yourself. It's so helpful. That's probably one of the questions I use the most besides that God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. For whatever reason, kids really want to wrap their mind around it. So they'll be like, so can God make a rock that's too heavy for him to carry? You know, and going, you're misunderstanding who our God is. So, but um, very, very helpful. Okay, back down. Number three, faith in God's word. So we need this for persevering prayer. Faith in God's word of promise as confirmed by his oath. Not to believe him is to make him both a liar and a perjurer, which cannot be. Hebrews 11:6 says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is 
and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. My KJV always wants to pop out, says diligently seek him. Um, Amber knows. Okay, so without faith, we cannot please God. We must believe that he cannot lie. So if we read it in his word, if his word says he hears, he gives us attention, can we go to the bank on it? Yes. Do we need to teach our hearts to trust that truth? Yes. That is work, ladies. That's when we roll up the sleeves and we get to work and we guard our hearts and we pay attention. What are my thoughts wrapping around? What am I loving? Am I loving the Lord the most? Or am I loving my own comfort the most? Am I worrying about this, that, and the other thing? Or do I have faith that as I pray, pray according to the word of God, very important, according to the word of God, as confirmed by his oath, I believe he hears, and I know he will work according to what he has decreed. I can't change that, but there's great comfort in that. Why? Because God is good and he weaves everything together for our good so we can trust in that. Number four, asking in accordance with his will. Our motives must be godly. We must not seek any gift of God to consume it upon our own lusts. <clears throat> James 4.3 there says, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. And ladies, is this not a battle of our hearts? We want what we want. And it's so easy to go into prayer without stopping and thinking through, what am I asking for? Why am I asking for what I'm asking for? Is this spiritually, eternally the best thing. Am I concerned about God's glory or am I concerned about what I have, what I need, what I want? These are vital questions we need to ask ourselves before we go to the throne of grace. And then number five there, importunity, which I didn't know what that meant, so I looked it up for you. It means persistence. So importunity in supplication. There must be waiting on God and waiting for God as the husbandman has long patience to wait for the harvest. Luke 18, one there says, now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. And he's referring to the parable of the persistent widow. He kept on going and going to the unjust judge. And yet we do not have an unjust judge. We have a loving Heavenly Father who listens and hears us when we pray. So, but what was the purpose of the parable? So that they would pray and not lose heart. Isn't that so kind that Christ is even saying it because he knows our frail hearts. He knows what we need to hear. And yet he says, be persistent. Keep at it. Don't lose heart. So, we need to be persistent in supplication, that waiting on God. Remember, um, I think even Yvonne talked about it last week, but the first time I talked, patience. You're going to hear it so much. 
It is so easy to run anxious thoughts because what we think is good is not happening right now. And it's so easy to get caught up and swept up in the emotion of the thing instead of saying, Lord, I trust you and I will wait on you. And it's easy to go, but, but I'm asking for a good thing. I'm asking for the salvation of my child. I'm asking for healing. I'm asking for us to be able to pay our bills. Aren't these good things? Yes. But are you holding them with an open hand, willing to let God do what he will in his own time? These are the things we need to think through as we're going to the Lord in prayer. So from verses 1 and 2, we discovered that the Lord hears And now we are going to see, be on your outlines, the Lord saves. Look at verse 3. The cords of death encompassed me, and the terrors of Sheol came upon me. I found distress and sorrow. So lest you think the psalmist is just singing along and he just doesn't really have a problem in his life. No. He is saying, let me tell you what God did for me. The cords were coming. This word cords is very much like ropes as in a noose. And the encompassed part of it, it's an entanglement. It's almost as though he's getting entrapped by death. And then there, the the distress, the terrors of Sheol first is a distress. It's an oppressive state of physical, mental, social activity. It's oppressive. It's dark. It's pressing in. Now, Sheol here is referring to the place of the dead, not necessarily hell. But he said, death is snaring me. It's wrapping around me. He could be actually talking about a very physical thing, that he was about to die. But it also could be a heavy emotional state as well. That distress is anguish. It's extreme distress of body or mind. That's his emotional pain. And then the word sorrow there, an emotion of great sadness associated with loss or bereavement. So the psalmist may have physical danger for his life or even in battle. It's possible he's in the midst of a battle. He's watching his fellow soldiers go down and he is in the midst of that level of distress in sorrow. And yet, what does he say? Before we look at that, I do want us to think, many of us at this point would want to just lay down at this point and wallow, right? You feel like darkness is closing in. You feel trapped. You feel alone. You feel sorry for yourself. Maybe thoughts like, Woe is me. Life is not fair. Why does everyone else have husbands who adore them and beautiful children who love to obey? And I can't even find the energy to get out of my bed. I know that my day is going to be so bad and I don't want to face it. Sometimes I wonder, maybe it would be better for everyone if I wasn't here anymore. And our thoughts keep spiraling down and down and down and we don't work to fix them like Yvonne was teaching last week. We need to stop that flow of thought and make ourselves dig a new trench for our thoughts to flow towards Christ. 
a fear of the Lord that renews our mind to be transformed into his likeness. Yvonne said something last week, and I was like, I need that on a pillow. That is awesome. She said, sometimes we don't want to respond rightly because it's a gob of work. I was like, that is so true of my heart. I'm going, I know I should be patient. I know I should be kind. I know I should be gracious, but it's so hard, right? I know I shouldn't be anxious in this moment, but it just feels natural. Well, that's just the way I'm put together. I'm just a naturally anxious person. You don't have to be. If you are a child of God, you have the indwelling Holy Spirit, and you have been giving everything at the moment of salvation for life and godliness, you can overcome sin. This is not the point where we sit back and we let go and let God. We, with trust that God can use us, need to move forward in our battle with anxiety. So look back down on um, verse number four. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. Oh Lord, I beseech you, save my life. Now that word beseech there is a very strong interjection. So he's at this point probably speaking extremely loudly or yelling. That Hebrew, I beseech you, is ah now. It's a very loud, almost like us yelling, oh no, or a please, oh please. So he's crying out to the Lord, save my life, the ESV says, deliver my soul. This is a cry much like Peter's when he tried to walk on the water to our Lord. And then all of a sudden, seeing the wind, he became frightened and began to sink and he immediately cries out, Lord, save me. This is the same type of cry here. Verse five, he switches. So much in this psalm, you've got switch, switch, switch. But is this not how our mind works sometimes? So he immediately switches to gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. That word gracious there, this Hebrew word is only used as an attribute of God. That particular Hebrew word used right there, gracious. So it's disposed to bestow favors or blessings. Then what else does it show us about our Lord? He is righteous. He's just in his redemption of us. And he is compassionate. I love this word. It can be also translated merciful. But listen to what the lexicon says. It says the primary idea appears to be in cherishing, soothing, and in gentle emotion of the mind. It's behold with tenderness affections. That is what our God sees when he looks at us, just tender affection. So the psalmist here dwells on the kind tenderness of the Lord. How many times has the Lord showed you that soothing and that gentleness when we deserve so much worse, right? The psalmist is centering his thinking around the character of God in the midst of his crying out to the Lord, Lord, I beseech you, save my life. He is calling to mind the character of God, and that is what he is setting his mind around. Verse 6, the Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low, and he saved me. Preserves there is to watch over, 
And then that word simple means young or a naive person. It can also mean foolish. But two, this foolishness can be foolish to the world. You just haven't gained a whole lot of common sense yet. So there are many ways, George, uh, excuse me, Charles Spurgeon says, there are many ways in which the child of God may be brought low, but the help of God is as various at the, as the needs of his people. He supplies our necessities when impoverished, restores our character when maligned, raises up friends for us when deserted, comforts us when desponding, and heals our diseases when we are sick. And ladies, too, just a little aside, let's remember those of us who really struggle with chronic illness, they struggle even to make it here to worship with us, even though I know some of them, it's their dearest joy. And it's easy when we don't see them to forget. But if you know of somebody who struggles with that chronic illness, make it a resolve to encourage them just on a rotation. You know, if you know they can't make it outside of their house, I know they deeply appreciate when people remember them. And then rejoice with them when they do make it here. So, okay, going on. Um, this is George Mueller. The church of God is not aroused to see God as the beautiful and lovable one he is, and hence the littleness of blessedness. Oh, beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, seek to learn for yourselves, for I cannot tell you the blessedness. In the darkest moments, I am able to confide in him, for I know what a beautiful and kind and lovable being he is. And if it be the will of God to put us in the furnace, let him do it, so that we may be we may acquaint ourselves with him as he will reveal himself and that we may know him better. We come then to the conclusion that God is a lovable being and we are satisfied with him and say, it is my father, let him do as he pleases. So ladies, when we get our hearts to that point, we know that the Lord hears and the Lord saves, but we also know, see, the Lord provides rest. Look down at verse 7. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. <clears throat> Psalm 13.6 says, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Charles Spurgeon said, even as a bird flies to its nest, so does his, the psalmist's soul, fly to his God. Whenever a child of God, even for a moment, loses his peace of mind, he should be concerned to find it again, not by seeking it in this world or in his own experience, but in the Lord alone. So ladies, this is why I'm saying train your minds, just as a bird will always return back to its nest Let's train our minds when we lose that peace of mind. We need to find it again, but we can't find it in the world. The world can't help us. We can't find it in ourselves or our own experience. That cannot help us, but we can find it in the Lord. Look down at verse 8. For you have rescued my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from stumbling. 
Charles Spurgeon again says, the triune God has given us a trinity of deliverances. Our life has been spared from the grave. Our heart has been uplifted from its griefs. And our course in life has been preserved from dishonor. So that feet from stumbling is not a physical stumbling. It's a spiritual life stumbling. You have protected my feet from dishonor, from stumbling and following you. So what does he say in verse 9? I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. That walk before the Lord is a life consistently in his presence. And it, it has a flavoring of divine favor. You're walking before the Lord. You're living your life. He is resolute. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living in front of everybody else. The reformers had a saying, Coram Dio, before the face of God. So often they would say, we need to remember we are always before the face of God, which we're a visual people, are we not? Is it not hard to keep in mind, I am before the face of God. He sees me and he knows and he hears. So that psalmist is resolute, I'm going to um, <clears throat> live before the face of God. So um, one thing that's helpful too is you see that, okay, wait a minute, the psalmist said my, for my soul to return to its rest, but now it's talking about walking before the Lord. You know, rest and walking doesn't seem to go together. Nathaniel Hardy said returning to rest is an act of confidence. Since there is no rest to be had but in God, nor in God, but by believing affiance in and reliance on him. Walking before God is an act of obedience. When we disobey, we wander and go astray, but only by obedience we walk. Now these two are far from being enemies, that they are companions and ever go together. Confidence being a means to quicken obedience and obedience to strengthen confidence. Do you see what he's saying there? That rest is a confidence in our God. I trust you, Lord, that you will work in this circumstance. But then we don't just, again, there's no let go and let God. There is a, now because I trust you, I will walk in obedience according to your word. And as I walk in that obedience, See the benefits of that, and that builds my trust and confidence in God because his word is not void. It is true. <clears throat> Second Corinthians 5.7 says, For we walk by faith and not by sight. George Mueller said, Faith is the assurance that the thing which God has said in his word is true and that God will act accordingly to what he has said in his word. This assurance, this reliance on God's worth this confidence is faith. No impressions, and what he means there by impressions is ideas of our own mind. No impressions are to be taken in connection with faith. Impressions have neither one thing or the other to do with faith. Faith has to do with the word of God. It is not impressions, strong or weak, which will make any difference. We have to do with the written word and not ourselves or our impressions. Moving along there in verse 10, the psalmist said, I believed when I said, I am greatly afflicted. 
Now the KJV, I think, gets that one a little bit better. I really struggled with this verse and the next verse because it's such a sudden switch of he's walking before the Lord in the land of the living. And he said, <clears throat> the KJV says, I believed, therefore I have spoken, I am greatly afflicted. And I think that's a better rendering. Charles Spurgeon explained it for me a little bit. Though greatly afflicted, the psalmist had not ceased to believe. His faith was tried, but not destroyed. Secondly, this is George Mueller saying, so as we're thinking through his faith not being destroyed, how faith may be increased. Because I bet you if I were to ask each one of you, and I, I asked you, do you want your faith to grow? You immediately, I have full confidence, you would do a hearty yes. So listen to the words of wisdom that God gave George Mueller how faith may be increased. God delights to increase the faith of his children. Our faith, which is feeble at first, is developed and strengthened more and more by use. We ought, instead of wanting no trials before victory, no exercise for patience, to be willing to take them from God's hands as a means, I say, and say it deliberately, trials, obstacles, Difficulties and sometimes defeats are the very food of faith. I get letters from so many of God's dear children who say, Dear Brother Mueller, I'm writing this because I am so weak and feeble in faith. Just so surely as we ask to have our faith strengthened, we must feel a willingness to take from God's hand the means for strengthening it. We must allow him to educate us through trials and bereavements and troubles. It is through trials that faith is exercised and developed more and more. God affectionately permits difficulties that he may develop unceasingly that which he is willing to do for us. And to this end, we should not shrink, but if he gives us sorrow and hindrances and losses and afflictions, we should take them out of his hands as evidences of his love and care for us in developing more and more that faith which he is seeking to strengthen in us. Were you able to grab on what he's trying to say? So much we're like, I want to grow on my faith. But I don't want trials. I definitely don't want affliction. And I most assuredly do not want to fail. And yet it's in those afflictions that our faith is caused to grow. So might we as ladies together say, okay, Lord, whatever it takes, grow my faith. Is that a scary prayer? Sometimes. Because we don't know, but can we trust the God who does know? Yes. And that is what we center our minds around. In verse 11, the psalmist said, I said in my alarm, all men are liars. So that word alarm actually means panic. He is panicking right now. So, and he's running away in haste. The KJV says, instead of said, I said in my alarm, it says, I said in my haste. I really struggled with this verse. I'm like, read it over and read it over. What does this mean? What is he trying to communicate? Jonathan Edwards, to the rescue. 
he says, I spake as I have declared because I trusted in God. So he's explaining this verse. I spake as I have declared because I trusted in God. I was greatly afflicted. I was in extreme distress. I was in great astonishment and trembling. And in these circumstances, I did not trust in man. I said, all men are liars. For example, not fit to be trusted in. Those that will fail and deceive the hope of those who trust in them. So do you get what Jonathan's going towards? Basically, the psalmist is saying, I panicked and I said, all men are liars because I can't trust in them. I can't trust what they're saying. I can't trust what they're doing because his confidence is in the living God. So he's almost doing a comparison. Now, we know that all men are not liars. You know, there are those who are transformed by the renewing of their minds, by the power of the Holy Spirit. But he's doing a drastic contrast. So he's panicking and saying, I'm not going to trust anybody but God. I just, I can't. I can't, I can't, I can't. So that is the point often, ladies, we need to get to. I will trust no one but God. Psalm 62, 8 and 9 says, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Men of low degree are only vanity, and men of rank are a lie. In the balances they go up, but they are lighter than breath. So there is the weightiness of we need to put our trust in God. Number two on your outlines, the righteous response to the Lord's rescue. And I'm going to try to move quick. Verse 12, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits towards me? And I love what Charles Spurgeon said about this. It is of little use to be harping on the string of man's imperfection and deceitfulness. It is infinitely better to praise the perfection and faithfulness of our God. So here he's showing that transition that the psalmist does from I'm greatly afflicted, all men are liars, and then he switches right into the, the righteousness. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits towards me? So what are the psalmist's right responses? The first ones on your outline is A, a response of public praise. A response of public praise. He says in 13, I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. Ladies, we are only able to lift up that cup of salvation because the cup of God's wrath that Christ endured for our sakes. We can only call on the name of the Lord because he first loved us and gave his son for us in order for us to be able to call on him. Verse 14 says, I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of all his people. So he is desiring to pay his vows. Whatever he had uttered when he was in that panic moment, when he was crying out to the Lord, promises he may have made to the Lord, he is resolving, I will pay my vows. And remember, when are the Israelites supposed to be singing this psalm? when they're on their way to celebrate the Passover. So there are sacrifices. There are different things to be carried out within that. And he is cementing in his mind, I will pay my vows. 
If I promise something to the Lord, I will pay it. Be oh so very careful, ladies, not to promise the Lord something in the middle of panic and then lightly excuse it later on. Those are heavy things. Pay your vows. Make sure you are in earnest. No promises of, Lord, if you just get me out of this this time. No, there needs to be a resolve. I will walk before the face of God in the land of the living. <clears throat> Verse 15, I, I'm sorry, he also has B, a response of rejoicing in our position. So you have a right response of public praise. B, you have a response of rejoicing in our position. Verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. The ESV for godly ones says saints, and it's precious. It's sacred, it's valuable. So here he's even reflecting on, I almost died. And yet in God's eyes, it is a precious thing. He sees, he hears, he knows. Moving along in 16. Oh Lord, surely I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your handmaid. You have loosed my bonds. Now you might go, Rachel, what is he talking about? He's saying, I'm your servant. I'm even the son of your handmaid, which back in that culture means doubly over, are you his servant? You have loosed my bounds. In the Lord's work, is it not light, ladies? His yoke is easy. His burden is light. So he, who, Charles Spurgeon, he who is loosed from the bonds of sin, death, and hell should rejoice to wear the easy yoke of the great deliverer. So ladies, with this, we need to remember it is a privilege to serve the king of kings, and it is a privilege to serve the people of the king. And once again, I'm so sorry. Okay, so C, we also need to have a response of thanksgiving. Verse 17, to you I shall offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call upon the name of the Lord. 18, I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of his people. Again, he's just confirming that vow. And then also notice all his people in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. And that psalm comes to a conclusion. So the audience in which the psalmist wants to praise the Lord is just getting bigger and bigger. He wants all of God's people to know the great things that he has done for him. So Mr. Mueller leaves us with one last thought. One thing more, he says. Some say, oh, I shall never have the gift of faith Mr. Mueller has got. This is a mistake. It is the greatest error there is not a particle of truth in it. My faith is the same kind of faith that all God's children have had. It is the same kind that Simon Peter had, and all Christians may obtain the like faith. My faith is their faith, though there may be more of it because my faith has been a little more developed by exercise than theirs. But their faith is precisely the faith I exercise, only, with regard to degree, mine may have been more strongly exercised. Now, my beloved brothers and sisters, begin in a little way. At first, I was able to trust the Lord for $10, then for 100 
then for a thousand, and now with the greatest ease, I could trust him for one million if there was an occasion. But first, I should quietly, carefully, deliberately examine and see whether what I was trusting for was something in accordance with his promises and his written word. If I found it was, the amount of difficulties would be no hindrance to my trust. 51 years and God has never failed me. Trust him for yourselves and find out how true to his word he is. And with that, ladies, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that we can trust you, that your word is true. Lord, we thank you for giving us George Mueller as an example of an ordinary man who trusted in an extraordinary God. Might you transform our hearts and our minds that we would not look at the anxieties around us, but that we would look at you and live lives full of trust and faith in you. It's in Christ's name we ask these things. Amen.